0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Gradient Podcast. We interview various people who research, build, or use AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I'm your host, Andrei Krankov. In this episode, I'm excited to be interviewing Dr. Miles Brundage. Miles is a researcher and research manager and is passionate about responsible governance of artificial intelligence. In 2018, he joined OpenAI, where he began as a research scientist and recently became head of policy research. Before that, he was a research fellow at the University of Oxford's Future of Humanity Institute, where he is still a research affiliate. He also serves as a member of Accent's AI and Policing Technology Ethics Board, and he completed a PhD in Human and Social Dimensions of Science and Technology from Arizona State University in 2019. I'm quite excited to be talking to you, Miles. Thanks for joining the podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks for inviting me.
0: And as we always do uh, before we get into, uh, you know, all your work and what you've published uh, looking before that, how did you wind up working on AI and and sort of what made you be interested in moving towards that direction?
1: Yeah. So before AI, I was working in energy and I I studied political science in undergrad and I spent some time working at the Department of Energy. uh, specifically at ARPA-E, which is sort of the DARPA for energy technology, um, and you know my my sort of goal there was just help the organization run more efficiently, and I you know would do some special special projects occasionally, like write a first draft of this report and, and so forth, and you know got got some sort of sense of what research might look like, but didn't, you know, it, it was clear that, you know, I didn't have the necessary qualifications to do much more than that. And it was mostly kind of an assistant kind of role. Um, and so I felt like there, you know, I wanted to sort of, uh, you know, I wanted to branch out and wanted to get more into research. So I was looking at grad school, and that was a natural time to think about, you know, is energy actually the right thing I should be working on? And I had kind of gotten more skeptical of that by by this point in time. I still think that climate change is super important and that that innovation and energy technology is super important. But in terms of whether each, whether, you know, I in particular should be working on it, I felt like it didn't need as much sort of novel policy analysis as some areas like AI, because it, it seemed like we kind of knew what we uh, knew what needs to be done. And, and you know, that's not to say that people shouldn't work on energy policy. I know some smart people who do, and, you know, they're, they're exceptionally good at it. But it felt, at least for me personally, like the things that I was more excited about was sort of breaking new ground and understanding a new domain where we don't even know what the right questions are. Whereas for for climate change and energy, it felt like, okay, we, we have a conceptual framework. We know about negative externalities and we know about, you know, the lack of a price on carbon. And we know that we need to throw more subsidies at, at, you know, energy technology. And, you know, there's a bunch of people working on batteries and solar and so forth. Whereas for AI, it's like, no one really knows what's going on. And and this was, you know, in, in 2012. So, and, you know, just at the beginning of the deep learning revolution. And so to an even greater extent than today, it was, you know, the Wild West and, you know, very little consensus on, you know, what the risks are, how impressed we one should be with, with, you know, this new deep learning stuff and, you know, whether it would have any economic implications and, you know, whether AGI was right around the corner and so forth. And some of those uncertainties are still there, but I think it was even more, even more, you know, vague at the time. And it seemed like there was potentially an opportunity to, to contribute. Interesting. Yeah. 2012 was an interesting period,
0: I guess, where I don't know how much, you know, 2014, 15, I think, within within the AI research community, but also outside of it, it became very apparent that AI is undergoing a major huge transformation and, and growth spurt and at that point it would be i don't know very clear that there will be need uh work will be needed on the policy front on you know economic fronts on all these fronts just to deal with the uh, implications of all of this uh, so was that sort of your thinking is
1: this is coming and we need to start working on it I was not as convinced then as I am now that that you know a lot of societal changes are imminent and and you know that that there's going to be significant disruption and and risks in the near term. I was potent I was more open to the possibility that this is going to be a long you know sort of century long kind of slog. And that maybe maybe what I'd be doing is mostly just sort of developing, you know, foundational ideas and, and basic concepts and so forth. But that, it, you know, there wouldn't be that much need for implementation anytime soon. But, you know, theory turned to practice, you know, pretty quickly. And I've, I've since, you know, seen the issue is more, more urgent that we you know, at, at the time, it was, you know, it, it, it seemed like there was we had more time than than it turned out that we had to sort of get get our get our ideas in order.
0: Yeah, exactly. I have to look back uh, in my undergrad in like 2012, 2013, I was doing intro to AI, intro to robotics, you know, learning about neural nets, starting research in robotics. And looking back at it now, I was like getting into AI research at this very transitional point, right? So it's it's interesting timing for a lot of people got into it now when you know, it was blowing up, I think. Also, coincidentally, I, uh, my first major was electrical engineering, and I wanted to work on energy and climate change, you know, because <laughs> that just made sense. Uh, but then I found that my skill set and, you know, just overall passion leaned AI. So I guess uh, you just got to go with uh, where you think you can do the most interesting stuff and be excited for
1: yeah, exactly. And, and yeah, I mean, the timing, timing was interesting. I I think like, um, you know, I, I, you know, was sort of for fortunate that things sort of worked out and that, you know, I, I, there, there, you know, I, I just sort of happened to have very, very convenient timing that, you know, some of the, that I was able to work out some theoretical issues and sort of build, build up some, some knowledge and experience and, you Uh, You know, sort of theoretical frameworks during grad school and that, you know, as things were sort of accelerating, eventually transitioned into into practice. But that was not, you know, not not a calculated thing. It was just sort of happy coincidence.
0: Yeah, that's <laughs> turned out quite well. That's great. So you got into, I guess, your PhD uh, in 2010s mm-hmm. and then went through it. So I guess, yeah, next up, we'll, we'll take a look at some of your work uh, in that period leading up to OpenAI. Uh, and, and then we'll get into that mm-hmm. a bit later. So first, I found it interesting looking through your CV. Uh, before we even get to research, is uh, some of your earliest published work is articles on Slate. Mm-hmm. So you were you were doing research, but you were also writing various kind of informative articles. Like there was one called "No Artificial Intelligence Is Not a Smart." As a four year old child and things like mm-hmm. that, kind of debunking a lot of the uh, you know, various little things, also reviewing some great books and things like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I I, I was I had the opportunity to, to publish some stuff like that due to a, a sort of collaboration between Slate and uh, the university that I was at, Arizona State University um, called feature tense, uh, sort of this, you know, blog on their website that I, I was able to contribute to, uh, due to being a student there. And, um, I, I, I think, you know, that was also just partially reflective of the fact that I, you know, never, I was like open to, you know, spending a lot of time in, in, you know, sort of academia, but I was also, you know, interested in the sort of broader, you know, broader policy and, uh, you know, sort of public sphere context of AI and wanted to, you know, be involved in the public discourse, because I think it's not super clear, you know, how how far, you know, ivory tower thinking can go. I think it's also important for, you know, the public to be involved in uh, in the, in these kinds of issues and to know what's going on. And I think, you know, that that's kind of been borne out with things like, you know, GP2 and GP3, which maybe we'll get into later, where, uh, you know, Perhaps one of the most important things that needs to happen in order for society to be more robust to some of the some of the potential risks there is to understand the limitations of these technologies and just to know that they exist and to know that we have these systems that are capable of of generating human like text and human like video and and so forth. So, yeah, it was fun to get get to sort of flex that, you know, public public writing muscle.
0: Mm, yeah. Interesting that there was this collaboration between KSU and Slate that I haven't heard of. Something yeah, it's like a cool that. thing. Yeah. So, and then at the same time, your first two years, um, what was your focus as far as research in AI, I guess, policy?
1: Yeah, so it I was kind of a transition period. So the first, so I was actually funded to do solar energy stuff. So uh, I, I didn't, I didn't switch at, I didn't switch to AI overnight. Uh-huh. You know, my pitch going, I, I, you know, I was like transparent going into grad school with my advisor and others that I was interested in AI. But you know, it is, you know, it's you have to actually get a grant, and there were not as many grant opportunities related to AI. Back then, you know, it's starting to be starting to be more of a thing. You know, there's a bunch of institutes and, you know, Congress is trying to throw money at, you know, at stuff at the intersection of AI and society and so forth, but that was not the case in 2012. Uh, so the easiest way to get funding was via um, this NSF grant on solar energy. So I took a lot of classes related to solar energy and worked closely with engineers and uh, scientists setting like photovoltaic cells and you know biofuels and other sorts of ways of, of leveraging solar energy as part of this grant. But I also you know dabbled in AI stuff on the side and you know took some classes in intro to AI. And you know, started following the literature and you know, reading textbooks and and so forth. And so I sort of gradually worked my way up to being an AI person, and eventually was able to kind of pivot when I got a p- p- pivot more properly. When I got a, a grant that was more generic and was able to spend more of my time on it. Ah, I see. I see. Yeah, it's interesting to hear how people take somewhat winding paths.
0: Sometimes, uh, yeah, I worked after undergrad for a bit, and then decided to go back to grad school and then wound up just returning to research um so and then yeah after you made that transition uh one of your earlier publications looks to be economic possibilities for our children ai and the future of work education and leisure which uh will seem like covered basically what the title says kind of that understanding of that uh, the future implications of AI. Um, so was that your focus, kind of looking at the economic prospects? Yeah,
1: I, I didn't really have a super clear focus. I, I mean, I was, I was interested in AI in general, and I'm, I'm still interested in AI in general. And you know, now i you know, sort of the the things that have come before me at OpenAI yeah. have sort of caused me to specialize more in like language models and responsible deployment and so forth. But but, you know, I, I I didn't really go into it with that intent. Uh, at the time, I was just trying to wrap my head around, you know, where is AI going? And some of the first few papers that I published at, at workshops were trying to sort of get at, you know, what, what, you know, how do we model AI progress? You know, what are the different ways of thinking about it and how do we sort of be more clear about different scenarios? And so in that particular paper, it was, you know. I just viewed it as like, OK, here's a potential domain where it could be helpful to sort of, you know, specify, you know, you know, here's how different ways of AI playing out might matter economically. And um, so it was more like I viewed it more sort of like a case study for for policy analysis rather than something I would end up spending a ton of time on. And I, you know, pivoted after that to things like malicious use of AI and and other sorts of things. But I still think that economic, uh, you know, stuff is is super important. I, I think probably, you know, a lot of people are underrating um, you know, the, the potential impact of AI because, you know, it's sort of growing exponentially and, you know, the exponential stuff is is small in the early stages, but eventually it gets huge. And I think we're we're almost at the point where it's it's going to be huge. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I like
0: uh, as a random note, but in this paper, you have this quote in a conclusion where you say uh, if the research community is successful at kind of planning ahead for AI and the economy. You say that uh, the community may one day be able to say that it play a key role in grappling with the challenges. Keynes alluded to when he wrote, thus, for the first time since his creation, man will be faced with his real, his permanent problem, how to use his freedom from pressuring economic cares, how to occupy the leisure which science and compound interest, Will have one for him to leave wisely and agreeably and well. Uh, and I don't know. I'm a big fan
1: of the utopian dream of AI, so uh,
0: I just liked that you concluded
1: that. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I. I I, yeah so as context the the you know title of this paper was sort of a play on uh you know John Maynard Keynes's paper economic possibilities for our grandchildren and you know kind of the the point I was trying to make was like okay things are getting potentially getting real now or at least like they might be getting real in the next generation um and you know Keynes was You know, thought that eventually we'd be sort of you know able to to automate a lot of things. But he didn't have a sort of clear causal model of it. He was just, oh, look at these trends. Look at you know this you know this sort of trend in in leisure time and you know working hours and so forth. Turns out he was he was wrong about some things, but you know roughly you know he said, oh, maybe a hundred years or so from now, maybe we'll be heading towards this leisure society. And I think now we're starting to have some line of sight on what that might look like in practice. It's sort of AI enabled productivity growth. And yeah, so that's kind of where I was coming from.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, also in another, in an article for slate reviewing, uh, some books on literature from, uh, McCarthy and Bridgestone, uh, I forget the title. You also have the uh, second from, machine age, the second machine age. Yeah. Which, which is a really good read. Um, yeah you ended also a quote from Asimov that it may be that machines will do the work that makes life possible and that human beings will do all the other things that make life pleasant and worthwhile I don't know I just like highlighting that uh, personally I don't know I've often reflected on why work on AI and uh, to me that's the dream
1: (laughs) yeah yeah no I mean and and this is this is a good opportunity uh, to, to plug a book by a colleague. Who I've collaborated a bit. Uh, it's called Automation and Utopia by John Donaher, who's a professor in um, in Ireland. And he, he has he has an int- it, that's probably like, you know, if I was if, if someone was interested in, you know, what might you know, what might happen with the future of work and, you know, how could it lead to a leisure society? And is that a good thing? I would definitely point to that book rather than rather than my old stuff. Uh, it's it's an interesting read. And I, I collaborated with. Uh, with John on a blog post a while back about uh, what you know what we called uh, AI's implications for cognitive scarcity and the idea Mm -hmm. there is that you know there's this sort of concept of you know a scarcity mindset where people particularly uh those who are suffering from poverty and and stress have this sort of mentality of um you know a a sort of justified mentality of scarcity of of time and resources and money and that that can actually have you know knock-on effects in their ability to solve problems and you know the kind of the idea is like you know it's it's hard to be you know hard to be poor basically and and, and um it and so the you know not that ai would you know sort of magically solve that but we were trying to think okay what you know what are optimistic scenarios for um for you know addressing that kind of scarcity at a cognitive level so people who have you know uh people who have you know the ability to sort of you know manage their sort of cognitive resources and their time more efficiently and you know ai could potentially serve a similar role in that respects to um, a personal assistant. So like today, you know, rich people have per- personal assistants who sort of help help manage their, you know, cognitive scarcity and keep track of all sorts of details. And, you know, John and I wrote a blog post sort of outlining a vision for how that, you know, how AI could potentially help address that sort of scarcity and give everyone access to um, you know this kind of world where um, you have technology, you know, in lieu of a sort of personal assistant, kind of taking care of the details of your life, so you're better able to focus on things. And yeah, so it, yeah, so again, sort of a tangent, but I, I, I guess that's like one thread that I sort of followed up on. Um, you know, going back to that paper, sort of, you know, what are ways that that AI could, you know, sort of address. Um, inequality of various kinds, um, and, you know, what are ways that it could go well uh, in sort of the best case. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I'll have to check out that book. So then uh, jumping forward a bit, uh,
0: you were one of the, I guess, lead offers, or at least the first listed offer uh, for the malicious, malicious use of artificial intelligence, forecasting, prevention, and mitigation. And this was, I think, when you were at the Future of Humanity Institute, of Oxford, and not yet at OpenAI, right? Uh-oh.
1: Yeah. So this was actually the first like big collaboration I had with OpenAI, and it made it kind of like a smooth, you know, transition uh, to to joining later, um, mm. because you know we it, it was sort of jointly authored and published with people at OpenAI and 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 other other institutions, and it was sort of my first big sort of collaborative project that that involved industry. And, um, and yeah, by the way, in terms of authorship, it was uh, the joint first author with Shahar Ravine, but unfortunately it's like really hard to get to <laughs> ensure like proper attribution of like co first authors try to try to indicate otherwise. It's just unfortunate. Yeah, and yeah, we yeah. probably could have done a better, better job clarifying that. But anyways. Um, yeah. So Shahar Ravine and I, uh, and then uh, we basically hosted a workshop on the malicious uses of AI. I, at the time, we called it the "bad actors" and AI workshop, and people made a lot of Nicolas Cage and other <laughs> kinds of jokes due to, due to the terminology. So uh-huh. we eventually changed to malicious use of AI, and the the you know central idea was you know actually you know very simple, and I think kind of taken for granted now. But it was you know not it was not as you know popular at the time that AI can be used for malicious purposes, and that you know there there are lots of cool things being developed like GANs and. Text generation and and so forth, but you know a lot of the applications are going to be actively harmful and and can be used for extortion and revenge and and exploitation and crime and and so forth. And we basically brought together a bunch of experts in terrorism, in autonomous weapons, in cybersecurity, and you know uh, authoritarianism, a bunch of different areas that you know were directly or indirectly related to potential misuses of AI and published this paper sort of outlining a, a framework for thinking about it and, wh- you know, the sort of making the argument that AI could make increase the speed and scale of certain kinds of malicious activity uh, and outlined that in a few different domains. So we called, called it political security, um, digital security, and I, for, I forget what the physical. Other ones maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah physical security. Yeah. So in each of these areas, There's, you know, potential risks and I think, you know, deep fakes and, you know, revenge porn are one sort of set of examples related to GANs that that was just emerging at the time. And we were just barely seeing the sort of first glimmers of that. Um, But this, you know, the paper was trying to draw a larger framework around this and then point to where it where it might, you know, where the rubber might meet the road in, in terms of the AI community's responsibilities like publication norms. And and so. You know, again, that was kind of like a smooth transition to OpenAI because it, you know, turned out that one of the first big case studies around malicious use and responsible publication was GPT two.
0: Exactly. Yeah, and, and we'll get to that uh, right after this. But to to dive a bit more into this work, and you know, we can't <laughs> go over all of it. It's a sixty-page uh, paper with a lot of interesting things. Uh, we'll link it in the description. Uh, you can read it. It's very, you know, approachable for non-academics as well. Um, but yeah, you have kind of a, f- a few main things, which is. Uh, characterizing that AI will expand existing threats, and there'll be new threats. There gonna be types of threats. You have some recommendations and some open questions. And I guess um, now that you've had a, a few years away from this, one question I would have is: amid these types of digital security, physical security, political security, where digital has to do with a lot of like cybersecurity, physical is like warfare, drones political is you know misinformation surveillance i guess what are you finding most prevalent or or concerning as far as misuse around now around you know this year next year so on
1: yeah so one that i've sort of observed you know sort of passively and haven't been in, involved in um, is physical security. And, you know, there have subsequently been a, a few assassination attempts involving drones, though. I don't know if AI was involved in any of them, uh, but certainly, you know, it seems like a real possibility. Uh, I think political security is probably the one that I'm currently most worried about, but that's, you know, I'm biased by the fact that open AI, you know, isn't, you know, isn't launching, you know, physical robots, but it's doing stuff that, you know, involves text, which, you know, in turn can have, you know, uh, political dimension. So I, you know, I, I first got really concerned about that. I mean, we touched on it a little bit in in the report, but, you know, didn't go into a ton of detail about, you know, a sort of text based disinformation and, and distraction and other things that you could do with language models. And this was, this was in the like GPT one kind, and, you know, early BERT era, you know, if that, so it was, you know, not quite as obvious then as it was now that we were heading towards uh, you know, the ability to generate very realistic um, human, human-seeming human text uh, at scale. Um, and, you know, subsequently, I think we've, you know, not just sort of, you know, it, it has evolved from an abstract idea to something that, you know, with GPT-2 we you know tried to raise an initial alarm on but didn't really have quantitative evidence on. We just, you know, had some kind of in-house, you know, proofs of concept. Oh, this could generate fake Amazon reviews and you know eyeballing it it looks kind of scary or you know we mm-hmm. we you know generated this this example of disinformation it looks kind of scary now there's an actual literature on it and you know there's there's whole reports saying yes this is this is a serious possibility you know there are sort of lab studies to to clearly you know demonstrate that people can be deceived by these things it's not an abstract thing the questions are more to do with you know what is the threat model what does this mean for the responsibilities of people providing access to AI via APIs. What does this mean for, um, you know, platform preparedness? What are the economics of this? You know, how does it fit into, you know, the kill chain of disinformation, so to speak? Uh, and so, you know, things have gotten more sort of pragmatic and there's a lot of discussion going on among people deploying language models and, and at these, you know, these large social media platforms about these issues. So that's probably the thing that that worries me the most.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, And on that note, one of uh, two of your recommendations in this paper is that researchers and engineers and AI should take the dual use nature of their work seriously. Dual use, you can use it for bad or good. And that best practices should be identified in research areas and more mature methods for dual use, like cybersecurity. So in a few years since, as you said, we've had GPT-2, GPT-3 really showcasing, you know, very clear dual use concerns. Do you think the community has made progress in sort of thinking about this
1: more and importing some ideas? Yeah, I, I think so. And, you know, I'm, I'm certainly like biased and have, you know, a, a sort of particular perspective on it, but um, but yeah, my sense is that there has been a significant movement in the direction for various reasons. I think some of it's due to, due to conversations that were sparked by GP2. Some of it's due to things like, uh, conferences starting to require, you know, uh, impact statements in in papers, you know, there, there are a number of sort of reasons and just, you know, sort of seeing evidence in the wild of, of things like deep fakes being used for you know revenge porn and political disinformation and and so forth. So I think for various reasons there's been more, you know, attention to these issues and there there have been several instances of companies beyond OpenAI uh as well as academic researchers, you know, explicitly not publishing something and the explicit part mm. is key. So, you know, there have been tons of, you know, throughout history not every AI, every AI, you know, model has been released, but typically it's sort of presumed that if one is not doing that, uh, it's for competitive reasons or, you know, logistical reasons that it's hard to, you know, decouple the, the model, you know, the, the, the sort of code from, you know, your company's infrastructure or whatever, but explicitly doing it for a, you know, potentially verifiable or, or sort of, you know, research researchable, reason related to social impact is more of a recent phenomenon. And, and I I think that it's a healthy phenomenon. It's tricky. And, you know, how do you actually draw those lines? When is something being done for, you know, actual, actual, you know, concern based on actual concerns? When is it because, you know, they're embarrassed of, you know, the the biases in the models and, you know, haven't, haven't done enough to prevent them? When is it because it's actually just a competitive, Kind of reason and they're they're cloaking it in the language of uh, of safety so I don't you know I don't have a perfect solution to that but I think it's good that people are talking about it explicitly rather than it just being a sort of default assumption of publish or you know sort of quietly not publishing
0: mm, yeah that, that makes a lot of sense and that's a good segue to talking about Gp2 where I think as you said that was kind of a first case study in Thinking more about what to do with publication norms as far as dual use technology. So yeah, you were, as far as I understand, pretty involved. You were, you know, co-author of better language model and their applications and then later release strategies and the social impacts of language models. So for anyone who you know has wasn't around and this was happening, could you just kind of summarize what this process was? Would you be
1: yeah. So basically we, you know, to some extent we had, you know, a, a sort of high level plan of, you know, we want to we want to treat this as a, you know, a, as a learning experience and as a sort of experiment for for understanding what, you know, what norms can look like in this area. And we 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 explicitly use the term experiment in that blog post that you mentioned. So the first blog post on GPT, GPT, two, we said, you know, this is an experiment. Maybe we're being overly cautious uh but you know we think eventually there are going to be systems that merit this this kind of intervention and you know it shouldn't be published or should be published in a stage fashion or you know there should be other kinds of precautions so let's you know let's try and see how it goes and what we ended up doing was basically making things as incremental and, and iterative as possible so releasing it in stages you know before releasing you know uh, you know, model size N plus one, you know, look at what has happened with model size N and give model size N plus one to some academics for them to poke at, uh, you know, in a safe environment and see see where it's going. And ultimately, we we ended up releasing you know all the versions of GPT-2. Um, we published a bunch of stuff about what we would found and, you know, b- some, both the positive and, and the negative. And I think, you know, there there ended up being a ton of creative and commercial and other kinds of applications of language models. And now, you know, there, there are several, you know, whole companies built around GPT-2 like models, um, you know, often scaled up much larger Um, and so I, I think there clearly ended up being, you know, a, a, there ended up being, you know, a a lot on the sort of benefit side, both for science and for, uh, and for creative and and commercial purposes. But I think the, the risks are starting to get, get significant. We, you know, I, I am much more concerned. And, you know, if you look at some of the scaling graphs in the GPT-3 paper, I am more concerned about GPT-3 scale models and GPT-2 there is a statistical relationship between size and propensity to deceive humans so you know if you do this kind of turing test type comparison of real new york times articles versus uh you know GPT-3 generated you know new york times articles the the crossover point is around sort of GPT-3 scale where it starts mm-hmm. to be statistically indistinguishable um and you know that's very concerning, and I, I think we were starting to see some of that with GPT-2, but it required a lot more cherry-picking, and, you know, there was definitely some risk, but the economics weren't necessarily quite there. It, it still, you know, took, you know, if you look at the original... Uh, GPT 2 blog posts you know that some of the the samples there including you know the 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 one about like civil war homework assignment or something that that was Mm -hmm. generated by me and and I, i forget how many how many how many times it took but you know often it was just total garbage uh and you know and you would have to sort of keep running it over and over and then you know you know, twenty-fifth time or so it would it would, you know, be something great. And you'd be like, okay, yeah, that, that's pretty impressive, but it would still make a lot of, you know, even if you if you look at it really carefully, it still, you know, has a lot of big, you know, world modeling kind of mistakes and contradictions. Mm-hmm. And GP three is is sort of better in that respect, which, you know, both increases the the potential benefits as well as the risks. So I think we learned some things about uh, about these things in the GPT two days, and we also learned that it's possible to have some degree of coordination. And as I mentioned, uh, some other companies have taken similar approaches. So, you know, Google, for example, during that period, um, you know, said explicitly that they were, you know, not releasing their MENA model, uh, which I think was around like two point six billion parameter or something chatbot model. And you know, there were there were a few other publications by other other companies that, you know, had clearly replicated GPT-2, um, but they, you know, didn't sort of release the weights, I think in part because we had, you know, put some sort of, you know, we had raised the burden of proof on that from, you know, just, oh yeah, of course you publish it to, you need a kind of story for why this is a reasonable thing to do. And, and I think in among the people who actually did that, they, you know, who did end up publishing, they did have, you know, kind of a story around it and sort of an explanation of the benefits, which, which are very real, um, yeah, so that that's kind of how it played out, and you know, we're still sort of you know dealing <laughs> dealing with the aftermath of of that you know sort of trajectory of language models that GPT two was just you know sort of one of the one of the early stages of, and things have gotten you know both on the positive side and the negative side more more significant since then. Yeah,
0: yeah, it was it was certainly interesting when you first announced it and pointed out that you know you could use this to generate misinformation, fake articles, uh, you know, could be potentially pretty bad, and then the stage approach basically lets you uh, go one a time and see that nothing too bad happened in practice, luckily. And then later on, uh, more recently, you are co co-author, co-author of this paper, all the news that's fit to fabricate AI generated text as a tool of media misinformation, where I believe you had um, a more close look at kind of the degree to which something like GPT-3 could, in fact, generate misleading uh, headlines and, and text and uh, the impacts of that. So, yeah, what did you find in, in that paper?
1: Yeah. So that was with some, uh, folks at Cornell. So Sarah Kreps and Miles McCain, and, uh, it was sort of an offshoot of the academic access uh, thing that we were doing with GPT-2. So we were sort of providing, providing, you know, the models to, uh, to, to some researchers to sort of, you know, explore the implications before we publish them more widely. And I think what that showed was sort of some early evidence of what I was just saying, that there's a relationship with model size and that, uh, you know, that there's this kind of tread line, but it still wasn't, wasn't quite there, uh, at the sort of GPT-2 and, and sort of sub, you know, sub full GPT-2 scale wasn't quite there, but it was still possible, you know, in, in some cases to, to sort of deceive people in that, in that, case we were using cherry picking so mm-hmm. uh you know and we we're transparent about you know what was going on and so forth but you know in some sense those results are not quite as scary as ones that came later and you know recent publications by folks at uh, the middlebury institute and georgetown center for security and emerging technology setting gp3 where there's you know often less less of a need for that kind of you know hand holding of the model um and yeah, so there were also some interesting findings there about, you know, how political polarization kind of influences things. So people, you know, view it's not just that, you know, you it's not a, you know, as simple as you just sort of put, you know, conservative, you know, misinformation or progressive misinformation in front of someone and it sort of changes their views. People also come into it with you know their own sort of preconceptions. And, you know, that is true both in the. Both in the context of human-generated, you know, information as well as you know, language model-generated uh, disinformation. So that was, you know, part of what we were trying to do. And you know, the the work I I was only a small contributor to this. It was mostly Sarah and Sarah and uh, the other Miles. Um, but yeah, they you know that it was trying to sort of you know add some rigor to this this discussion of of language model generated text which has subsequently grown a lot now there's all sorts of papers on detection of language model uh, outputs and you know biases in in language model outputs not that our, not not that we were the first but you know there this it was you know in that sort of early batch of papers
0: mhm Yeah,
1: that that makes sense. And yeah,
0: it has some interesting other things as to like, does it change your views and so on? Um, And related to that, I guess, um, given this is one of the main concerns, one thing that's kind of surprising sometimes, uh, when you look, take a deeper look is that um, right now, shallow fakes, you know, just like human generated, not necessarily very work intensive stuff is, I believe, the main tool still and and it's not too clear of deepfakes necessarily, to me, not too clear of deepfakes. Kind of a game changer. Uh, uh, shallow fakes are, you know, about as bad already. So yeah, what are your views on sort of how having deepfakes and and you know ability to scale change
1: the status quo from what we already have with misinformation already being common? Yeah, so that's kind of what I was. Roughly gesturing towards when I mentioned the economics, that you know, is it actually, you know, even if it is possible in the lab to generate something that you know is is sort of scary, is that actually feasible when you know if someone when you know you have someone paid you know a dollar an hour to write you know fluent English and you know some some country or something you know and you know there are sort of whole buildings of of people in you know Russia and elsewhere who are sort of generating text you know do the economics actually. Work out for for you know switching to AI generated. I think you know it's complicated. I'm not the expert on this. Uh, uh, you know it is. It was you know we things have come a long way since you know since we were sort of saying like hey this is a concern. Now they're you know scholarly uh, you know, publications on this. And, you know, so like Shelby Grossman, for example, is, is a scholar at the Sanford internet observatory, um, who, you know, wrote, uh, I believe one of the, or was one of the authors of the chapter on, in the foundation models report about, about some of these risks and, and, you know, is, is helping bring rigor to that. And, you know, Georgetown has studied this as well. Middlebury has, has studied this as well. I think it's, you know, un, I, I'm not sure there's going to be a single answer of, you know, Now, you know, in, you know, it didn't make sense in twenty 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 one, but now it makes sense in twenty twenty two. You have to think about, you know, where are the applications that that it might or might not make sense? You know, when could it be used as a tool along with other tools? So it's not that, you know, it's not that humans right now are just, you know, Right, you know, taking out a legal pad and a pen and you know writing perfect prose from scratch. They'll sometimes use tools like spinners, which kind of you know ch- you know change around the text and sort of reformat and come up with a different version. So there's already you know technology being used, and this could become a you know a, an aid along with others. Uh, I think it's pretty, I, I would be, you know, we, we're already seeing, you know, evidence that people, you know, try to push the boundaries of our, you know, policies on API and sometimes we'll, you Mm. know, try and programmatically generate some text and, you know, it's something we have to sort of actively look for. So I think the desire is there. People want to, you know, sort of do things more cheaply. I think the, the, the like technological, you know, capabilities are getting stronger over time, um, you know with with like one caveat of it's also getting we're also getting better at you know building models that can sort of refuse to do those things so we we have you know it's possible if you do the right do sort of fine tuning of a model in the right way to try and get it to say, oh, I don't know the answer to that question or, you know, to sort of, you know, build a content filter that, you know, will prevent a certain kind of output. So there are potentially some things you can do on the sort of API side, but in terms of the base models that are being published, you know, GPT-J, for example, there, you know, GPT-J is stronger than GPT-2 and, you know, GPT-J, you know, 3, you know, 3x larger is going to be stronger. So the technologies are clearly improving at some point. There's going to be a crossover point, you know, if we're not already there where it starts to make sense uh, for for misusing in the wild. Um, and I think we need to get get ready for that. And, you know, I, I think one of the when I mentioned earlier that this is the this is a thing that concerns me. Part of why it concerns me is that you know we were reaching the point where you know even if all the main industry actors you know were to sort of perfectly coordinate on on you know responsible you know sort of use case policies and enforcement of of abuse and and so forth there're still eventually going to be open source versions of gpt3 and and other big models that uh, you know and there're going to be you know some kind of fly by night operation type companies that provide you know really cheap inference or even you know subsidized you know it because they want to cause some chaos and mm-hmm. so you know even if even if the leading actors coordinate eventually society needs to be robust to the existence of technologies that can cheaply generate human passable text at scale for negligible cost. You know, that hardware is going to get cheaper. Models are going to get better. You know, the the tools for fast inference are going to get better. Everything is sort of moving in that direction. It's just a matter of timing and how do we, how do we get ready for that?
0: Mm, yeah. Makes a lot of sense. And, and now's the time to start getting ready because yeah. it's coming. And then another kind of area to work on uh, that you have worked on is not just misuse of AI, but trusting AI. So if you build it, what what if it does something unintentional or how do you avoid it doing something unintentional? And so uh, last year, similar in a way to uh, the malicious use of AI, you had the toward trustworthy AI development mechanisms for supporting verifiable claims, which again was I think a result of a workshop was um, you were kind of one of the several lead offers with, again, Shahar and also some people at OpenAI. And um, yeah, some five lead offers. So we'll just say a lot of offers on this one. Uh, yeah, so I guess what was the main uh, goal of that effort and, and what were the main kind of conclusions or contributions in, in this paper?
1: Yeah, so this was a huge collaboration with with a bunch of people, and you know the the other lead author is me, Shaharavine, Hayden Belfield, uh, Jasmine Wang, and Gretchen Krueger. Uh, at you know uh, some at OpenAI, and and some also at Cambridge, and. Uh, and and other places, and and you know we we had co-authors from you know else, elsewhere in industry and in, in civil society and uh, you know lots of different places. And you know the the sort of common question that we were trying to ask from different angles was you know what does trustworthy AI development look like, and you know what across different you know dimensions. So you ultimately want people to say oh my my system is safe and you know protects privacy and and you know it's you know can't be misused and so forth but why would someone believe that i think there are different ways that you can you can sort of slice and dice that problem there are level there are interventions at the level of software and you know using certain privacy preserving ml algorithms for example there are institutional mechanisms like uh, having bounties for uh, bias uh, for example which you know is sort of a, both a credible commitment and a way of of, of sort of increasing, you know, the the trustworthiness of someone's commitment. If you're sort of, you know, putting your money where your mouth is, in in these respects, um, you know, none of these are kind of, n- none of these are perfect. But I think the 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 sort of idea of the paper was that a lot of mechanisms, you know, composed in the right way in the right context, could you know make it so that people could say, okay, yeah, I actually have confidence that this. You know this. This company is making you know making legit claims, and I have evidence to support you know the conclusion that this is sort of a trustworthy product. And I think we're a long way from there. The paper was just sort of intended to you know give a lay of the land, a sort of framework for thinking about it. So dividing up among institutional mechanisms, software mechanisms, hardware mechanisms, uh, and hopefully you know point in some direction. And subsequently, you know, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I think in this case, probably not as a result of the report, but just due to other people's initiative, um, you know, there's been some progress in, in some areas such as, for example, bias bounties. Twitter had a um, had a sort of pilot in this area recently. Um, there's also been, you know, some some further maturation of, of things uh, in some cases, actually, as a result of of the report. Um, so just a, another example of, of a thing that we mentioned on institutional mechanisms was um, reporting of AI incidents. So one thing that I find really inspiring in the case of airline safety is that there's like a really robust system I, I, I mean I it's much more robust than we have maybe maybe it's not perfect you know there's still you know uh, there's still crashes that happen but you know the the safety record of uh, planes has improved dramatically over the past few decades and part of the reason for that is that there's a sort of, uh, system in place for reporting incidents, investigating crashes after they happen in detail, and basically making sure that the same mistake is not made twice, um, which is you know, really important in, in sort of safety critical contexts we don't really have a, a culture around that in AI. Usually if something goes wrong, you hear about it from, you know, investigative journalists or in a paper or a leak or, or something like that. It's not like, you know, you go to sort of report to a centralized database or you, you know, sort of like have an anonymous tip line for, you know, a sort of, you know, government government source or something. And and I think there's a lot to be learned from the, the airline safety case where, for example, I think there's something on the order of like, you know, tens of thousands of anonymous uh, sort of reports a month of things that aren't necessarily actual things that went wrong in airline safety. But, oh, well, you know, it seemed like maybe they didn't, you know, didn't adjust this. You know, they didn't, you know, uh, they didn't pay enough attention to this thing. And, you know, it it worked out. But, you know, I'm slightly worried about this company's behavior and, you know, their sort of monthly newsletters sort of rounding up uh, takeaways from all of these thousands of tips and saying, okay, this is an area where there needs to be improvement across the industry. And this was a near miss that we need to learn from. And here's sort of an, an anonymized transcript of this conversation that we can learn from. And and yeah, so I think this this idea of incident reporting and and sort of, you know, incentivizing people and sort of having infrastructure for sharing of information, I think is is one of the areas that I'm excited about and moving towards. And, you know, it's not so much that you know, someone says it's not so much that a company can say, oh, well, you know, we're trustworthy because, uh, you know, because there's this system. But, you know, that you're sort of building trust at the level of, you know, the, the broader ecosystem, not not at the company level. So it's sort of building these infra- infrastructure slash system level uh, improvements, I think, could could, you know, improve, improve outcomes and eventually allow you to trust the, the companies themselves more.
0: Yeah yeah it's it's been really interesting to see some of these things happen i was i was very excited about the twitter bias bounty and i don't know if you were referring to versus the uh,
1: partnership on ai ai incident yeah, database
0: yeah. so that that is an interesting effort yeah yeah,
1: yeah. so i i see yeah so there, there, at the time that we wrote the report, there was, you know, there there was an initial version of that. And then we said, okay, here here's some, you know, areas for improvement. Um, We had, you know, an author from the partnership on AI and subsequently it's been Im- improved a bit further. I still think that, you know, there there's, you know, and I think, you know, the people involved with it would agree that there's still a long way to go. But I think it's sort of, you know, a, a step in that direction in the same way that the bias bounty thing is also a step in that direction. And that's kind of, you know, that's like a kind of, common theme across some of the reports that i've been involved in is like we just need to try stuff we don't know we you know in some cases you know you know what to do but in a lot of cases we need to just try more things and and sort of you know take, you know, take some institutional kind of risks and, and, you know, see what happens around publication norms and, and, you know, different ways of reporting incidents and, you know, doing bounties and so forth, because it's in some respects, AI is similar to these technologies, but it also has a lot of, you know, it's not, you know, the structure of the industry and the nature of the technology is not exactly the same as airline safety. And in a lot of respects, it's changing much more rapidly, for example. Mm. Yeah, definitely.
0: Well, um, yeah, and then to kind of conclude a little bit, uh, going back, going to the most recent kind of 2021, it's been a lot of stuff going out at OpenAI, uh, obviously with GP3 and then Clip and and other things. So aside from, I guess, your published work, maybe you can zoom out and just look into uh, your team at OpenAI and you yourself, kind of what, is your mission, and, and what do you do on an ongoing basis uh, with respect to GPT free or maybe you know just generally at
1: OpenAI? Yeah, so I lead this team called Policy Research, and you know very broadly, what we're trying to do is do research that helps inform the right policies for AI, and you know policies very broadly defined, so rules, norms, and institutions that that govern AI development and deployment. So we're interested in finding the right policies internally for for deployment purposes and externally for for regulation of ai and uh, and for coordination among among actors on on ai de- deployment so it's a pretty broad mandate and and you know but sort of there are a few things that you know are sort of obviously needed if you're trying to figure out the right policies for ai one is understanding you know what's the deal with particular ai systems and what are their risks and and you know how can you mitigate the the sort of most salient risks. so a lot of what we do on a daily basis is sort of probing. Models like gpt 3 and Codex and Clip and Dolly and others to understand, you know, their properties and doing analysis of, uh, analysis of them along various dimensions of safety, looking at different possible mitigations for addressing the, the issues that we see and, you know, sort of writing, writing up reports on those for public consumption and to advise, uh, The product teams to just on how to implement mitigations in practice. So just as an example of this for uh, codex, we did a ton of work to sort of understand what are the economic dimensions of this, what are the security dimensions, bias, um, you know, safety, uh, all sorts of different dimensions of of code generation, because, you know, the, the capabilities, you know, had there had been some work in the program synthesis uh, community before. So it wasn't entirely unprecedented. But there was still, you know, a, a sort of qualitative shift in in how sort of usable these systems were in, in sort of everyday engineering context. So there was a need to need to sort of take a fresh look at, you know, what, what are the implications of of these particular models, as well as this broader area of code generation. And so we did lots of experiments. We talked to a lot of external stakeholders and you know, organized sort of a mini workshop with some economists, for example, we, you know, sort of did, you know, buy it, you know, develop sort of de novo kind of bias probes uh, to, to sort of understand, you know, what, what are, you know, we know that there's going to be bias issues with, you know, any kind of AI system. What does that actually look like in the context of of code generation and, you know, sort of developed threat models around the security dimensions of it and and advised uh, the product team on on sort of what to do about that and help help build mitigations and infrastructure for monitoring for for misuse and 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 sort of documenting these issues for users. So that's that's a lot of it but there's also you know thinking about the broader aspects of you know the 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 bigger picture of you know where is this how does this fit into making sure that AI and AGI go well longer term how much need and and potential is there for coordination among different developers uh, and different countries on on making this go well and you know what kind what happens when technologies move beyond the point where just having nice industry norms is going to solve the problem but you know as I mentioned earlier with open sourcing with open source versions of GP3 clearly, you know, even if we do everything perfectly and have great internal policies, that's not, solution. that's not a full solution because eventually, you know, it's going to be plug and play for everyone in the world. So what what does that look like and how do we work with others at the company, including our public policy team and and comms team to think through, you know, how do we advocate for changes that will make things make things go well more broadly when things move sort of out of our direct influence?
0: Yeah, I see. Yeah, it's, it's good to hear. <laughs> OpenAI with Codex and gpt has been you know, at the forefront of releasing very impactful models. Uh, and I guess it's not so obvious that there's always internal work going on into being uh, careful about it. So glad to hear. Um, yeah, I think of that, we can go ahead and then wrap up. It's been really interesting to hear about uh, all your work so far, and I'm excited to see what's coming next. Yeah, thanks again for joining uh, us for the interview. Yeah, thanks so much for, for having me again. It was a great discussion. And just to conclude, this is the Gradient podcast. Check out our associate magazine over at thegradient.pub and you can go to our Substack to subscribe. Uh, please review, share, uh, subscribe, all of that. Thank you for listening and tune in to our future episodes.